Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. SavvyCal is a new scheduling tool that helps you protect your time to do deep work. Given all the projects I'm involved in, it's all too easy for my calendar to become a complete mess. With SavvyCal, I can set frequency limits so I only have so many meetings in a day or week. I can set preferred times to meet, and I can also toggle between multiple availability presets so I can batch similar meetings together. Create a free account at SavvyCal.com EIM, and also get your first month of a paid account free by using the code EIM. On the show today is Paige Doherty. Paige is the founding partner at Behind Genius Ventures and the author of Seed to Harvest. Behind Genius Ventures is a Gen Z fund that is, invests in early stage startups. And also, Seed to Harvest is an illustrated book that explains venture capital in a way that even kids can understand. I wanted to bring her on because she's raised an entire fund primarily through Twitter, which really showcases the power of an audience. And you'll hear about how she helped kickstart the viral eye mouth eye movement, her cold email outreach process that's led to getting in contact with influential and hard to reach people around the nation, and what she's seeing in her portfolio of early stage SaaS companies working on product-led growth. So to start out, I love asking my guests, did you ever think you'd be in venture capital and teaching venture capital for a living? No, a couple different things. So one, when I was six, I wanted to be a professional shoe tire. I was like really excited about learning how to tie my shoes. <laughs> and although I didn't grow up to tie shoes, I think that like a large quality of that kind of like servant leadership has has, has led me to my current path. And then I also like to joke that I, I got into venture because my career managing rappers didn't work out. <laughs> when I was in school, you know, I was in the corporate world. I worked at Northrop Grumman and a growth equity firm. But outside of that, in school, I was always at music festivals and shows. And I could never, you know, I was really lucky. I got a full scholarship at state. I was paying rent through the different jobs that I was working. But I couldn't afford to go to as many music shows as I wanted to go to. So I figured out if you cold email a manager of an artist and are like, hey, I have a camera, like I'm shooting in San Diego, I have this music newsletter, would love to interview, you know, like such and such artist. They're usually pretty receptive to those emails. And so I got to interview all of these incredible artists. And one thing that really stuck out to me was along with the, <laughs> the lasting hearing damage. I love talking to these artists who had taken the conventional paths of their careers and you know what people had expected of them and thrown it out the window to pursue something that they were really passionate about. And that was a similar quality that I started to find in early stage founders when I joined my entrepreneurship program at SUSU. Absolutely just love talking to people who had thrown that conventional way of thinking out the door and, and were working so diligently on something that they were really passionate about, regardless of if anyone thought it was like a good idea. And so I kind of got my foot in the door through venture because I had an entrepreneurial spark and I loved working with those early stage entrepreneurs, but I didn't really know what company I wanted to start. So I ended up joining a venture capital investment competition team at SCSU. Everyone else had been, you know, practicing and training for like years. Some schools even had full year-long classes that they could take, and, and we had eight weeks to train. So 
got together with this team of like four finance guys and me. I was studying computer science at the time and I binge watched all of Silicon Valley's seasons in seven days over my winter break, <laughs> like huddled up in bed. And I think for me, I had never realized that venture capital could be a career that was available to me. I always thought it was a bunch of old dudes sitting in a mahogany library picking companies to invest in. And when I saw Monica, I saw her in Silicon Valley, I saw her as a role model, and I think that representation was really important. And I just fell in love with the way that, you know, going from studying like mechanical engineering, which is all about physical systems, computer science, which is all about software systems, to entrepreneurship, which is all about like managing businesses, to venture capital is kind of uh, a larger abstraction of that because you're helping support a portfolio of businesses. And that was really where I found a combination of things that I was good at. So cold emailing from working with these music artists and having deep, interesting conversations about what they were passionate about to my venture capital competition. I loved like being in these really high pressure situations presenting to like actual venture capitalists. And I just wanted to wholeheartedly pursue that passion of mine. And so it's, it's taken me a lot of cool places, but it started as just didn't know it was a career option and I just fell in love with the craft of venture and what it enabled me to spend my time doing and here I am so yeah didn't didn't one of those (laughs) didn't grow up thinking I was going to be a venture capitalist but I ended up one yeah probably not many just like no one wants to grow up to be a marketer not very many people (laughs) grow up thinking that venture capital is a you know a career or something worthy of pursuing but one of the things that piqued my interest was it was sort of a red pill, blue pill moment, like the matrix where you're talking to all these artists and you're seeing all these people start these interesting companies and you're getting this exposure to all these, you know, this whole world and worlds that you didn't even know exist or kind of how they worked. And then sort of your eyes are open and you're like, oh, okay. Like, you know, you can never go back at that point, right? It's everything yeah. else seems a little bit more dull or boring or normal. And you want this <laughs> sort of new, exciting kind of cutting edge stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was definitely a really interesting transition, especially growing up. So my dad was an engineer and my mom, my dad is an engineer, my mom's an artist. And I grew up with a definite appreciation for like the physical craftsmanship. And so I think that's been cool carrying that value over to the more like digital world and applying it in different ways. So I'd say I have like a deep appreciation for like trades and craftspeople and try and imbue a lot of that in in my work now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, yeah. there's like a million different uh, paths I want to go down and things I want to explore. But mm-hmm. just so we kind of paint a picture of who you are and sort of what you're involved in right now, could you give like a brief kind of like timeline and overview of how you how you got to where you are today. You mentioned a few things, mm-hmm. you know, growth equity, you know, working, you know, STSU, internships, but just like the brief timeline. There's like, you know, the resume is always <laughs> already very impressive, but just so people have an idea of who you are. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm 22 right now. When I was in high school, I tried really hard. I was a bit of a teacher's pet and I was, you know, president of different clubs and really involved. And when I got to college, you know, all my friends were going to like Ivy League school and I got to SCSU and I was like, oh, this is so cool. There's like so many people from like different backgrounds and it was like such a broader experience 
And so I felt compelled to explore a range of different interests. When I was 17, my senior year of high school, I started working at Northrop Grumman, which in hindsight was really interesting because when other people were like, you know, exploring like normal high school things. I was learning about the airworthiness qualities of like unmanned (laughs) autonomous vehicles and, you know, working with like the Italian Ministry of Defense. I had a security clearance. And so, you know, being really cognizant of like what I was doing and who I was being around, which for a 17 year old is kind of a big responsibility, like obviously like an, an honor, but a big responsibility. And So I was there for about three years. I worked full-time during the summers, and then I worked part-time during school. I started SDSU in the fall of 2016. I was studying mechanical engineering. I did that for about a year and a half. I remember I was really nervous to tell my dad that I was switching my major. I really, really actually wanted to switch into marketing because that's always been a big passion of mine, and he really encouraged me to keep on a technical path because I had already gone so far and it would kind of mean starting over from a school perspective. But my deal with my parents was that I would pursue that like marketing and entrepreneurship spark in a different way. And so I spent all of the money that I had on a non-refundable flight to Rome to study abroad with the director of our entrepreneurship program, Bernie Schroeder, who became a big mentor of mine in the entrepreneurship world, I used to work at a large distributed marketing firm that served clients like Apple and Amazon in their early days. So <laughs> that was in 2018, December. Right before that, I had torn my MCL skating, which was not <laughs> not the, the ideal thing, time to be it's wearing like a full leg brace. It was on the cobblestone streets of Rome. But I ended up spending those three weeks in a very reflective period, both because I was dealing with like a high level of pain at like all times of the day. I learned a lot about mindfulness in that period and I spent a lot of time reading and just like walking the streets of Rome thinking about what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And and I think I, I spent a lot of time in my head there. I, I met a lot of really interesting entrepreneurs And that was the start of me being like, okay, I want to get into this world more. And so I had dinner with Bernie on one of the last nights of the trip and went to this incredible restaurant that kind of overlooked Rome and had like these fancy meatballs and he knew the chef and he was just ordering stuff off the menu. And and I was just asking him all these questions about entrepreneurship and it was like, oh, you should join the, the Lavin Entrepreneurship Program. Unbeknownst to him, I already knew about the Lab and Entrepreneurship Program. I had known about it since I was like sophomore in high school. And I was like, oh, what a coincidence you're asking me that. Because it's it's super competitive, like 5% of people that apply get in. So I spent the next two years doing that. I had applied to switch my major right after I came back from that Rome trip. So it was kind of like this new, fresh beginning. I felt really out of place in my computer science classes. Not only because I was like one of the only women in the classes, but also I just... I was like, I'm never going to be a 10x like, engineer, but I really enjoy like learning about technical things and, and that fluency. So that took me to that the venture capital competition was like my junior year. And so I spent the rest of my sophomore year studying computer science, working at Northrop into that next, next spring after the venture capital competition in the spring of 2019. I ended up getting recruited to a growth equity fund in San Diego, TVC Capital. 
It's around a $400 million venture fund focused on B2B SaaS and especially like sales-led growth. So I learned from some of the best salespeople I've like ever met in my life, like total, like, like, like rainmakers. Our VP of sales especially was super cool to talk to this guy named Nelson, who is this big wave surfer and like gave me books like A Separate Reality by Carlos Castaneda and showed me that there could be a good intersection between spirituality and conscious leadership and also like being a rainmaker and being really good at sales which I like to is very like family first. And so I think that was all of the people I met there were incredibly like family driven and that was a cool environment to be in. And so after that, I went back to school, like after that summer, I went to this really cool conference called Hive. And so I, you know, been putting myself through school When I got to my senior year, I was going to be like an RA, a resident uh, advisor, and I had had my housing lined up. I had had like my job for the year. And then I met the founder of Hive in in San Diego, Ryan Alice, and he was like, oh, you should come to this conference. It was the same time as the RA thing. And I remember calling my RA supervisor maybe in July, and I was, I took a, walked out of the TVC office. I, I called my RA supervisor and I was like, hey. I really want to go to this conference as well, like conscious leadership and entrepreneurship. And I think like, it'll be really important to my development and it will also make me a better RA. And he was just like, I'm sorry, like the rules are you can't miss any of the RA training. Like it's really important. And on the spot, I was like, you know what? I don't think this is really going to like suit my needs this year. And so like respectfully, I'd love to like pull my application. And then I hung up the phone and shit. (laughs) like I just threw away my like housing my job for the next year and I think that was one of like the bigger risks that I had taken it might not sound like that in in hindsight but I was throwing away a lot of certainty to go to this conference that I knew nothing about and it ended up being one of the better decisions I've, I've made I ended up going to this conference I met incredible people that were successful entrepreneurs that followed the like aspects of conscious leadership, which became really important in kind of how I saw building a business, building, building a brand online, like being authentic to, you know, my like family first values. So that was August of 2019. I worked at TVC. They called me back into the partner's office after I got off that phone call and were like, Hey, by the way, we have an opening this fall. We were wondering if you were like free to work here. And I was like, You'll never believe (laughs) who I just talked to. In January of 2020, I went to New York, which was because of a cold email. I wrote to Mike Dempsey, who I was like following on Twitter. And I was like, hey, I just saw this like quote that you were tweeting about that you wanted some article about how angel investing is an application of social capital. Here's like an article I found from 2015. We just like went back and forth on email And he was like, yeah, if you're ever in New York, hit me up. And I was like, hmm, I've never been to New York. And I have like a cousin there. And I just went on and again, like spent my savings on a trip to New York. (laughs) And I was like, hey, random. But, you know, Mike, if I like I'm in New York, like, are you in town? And he was like, yeah, let's go get coffee. And we went to this great place in Greenwich Village. And it was there, he was like, learn in public, like start tweeting about the projects that you're working on. 
And that's really when I started to come out of my shell and be more of a contributor online. I would say I was like definitely kind of a lurker. I started by curating things. I think that's a really easy way to get started with creating is you don't necessarily need to create anything like from thin air. You just curate the awesome resources that are available online. And that was also during the period when I was going through recruiting for a venture firm in Boston. And this is super important because it was a partner track role. There was no one else from SCSU really getting recruited into these types of roles. And I ended up turning it down to stay with my family in San Diego. And that became a big anchor point for me is I live my life with family first values and I'm willing to sacrifice like career opportunities to see that out. And that blossomed into me pursuing my interest in venture, like throughout the pandemic, you know, I, my, my senior year was like March 13th. I remember I went to school and I was like, this is the last day I'm going to be in college. And it was, I, you know, went back for the weekend and school was canceled. So I spent the next five months at my parents' house, just like hanging out with my family, which is so incredible to have made this decision to stay there and not go to Boston. And then from that point, started tweeting. In July, I started writing Seed to Harvest, which is a book illustrated by my brother. And it's about basically like a simple explanation of venture capital. And took until September to get to like a first, uh, really solid first draft of that. Then I ended up raising around $5,000, which was kind of like my first internet dollars that I had made. Mm, yeah. I, I had built this audience and I wasn't really sure what was the correct like monetization alignment, but I knew that it was really valuable because most of them were like founders, operators, investors, and journalists. And I was like, oh, this is a really interesting like combination. And that ended up like driving my first syndicate deal in November of 2020 in a company called Palette, which I'm really excited about. They make job boards for creators and and help them monetize their communities. And so I had handed the book project off to Owen at this point, and he was going through the illustration. I had a bit more free time on my hands. And what would I do with free time but start another side hustle while I was full-time at WorkWest as a developer success engineer. That started in like May of 2020. I just left a week ago to pursue what I'm doing now full-time. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Really cool. And I started doing these syndicate deals. So I ended up raising around $300,000 in a span of three months to invest in five early stage startups. During that process, I met my partner, Josh. We decided to create Behind Genius Ventures to invest in early stage product-led growth companies. We both spent time as both investors and operators. We're both super young. I'm 22, Josh is 24. And we felt that there was an opening in the market for us to invest in our peers who are largely like internet native and building remote companies. And we had both started like investing in a, in a remote capacity and, and are seeking to like build a remote first firm in the future. So yeah, and and that's kind of how it started. We started building the firm in about March of this year and had a first close in in April of 1.6 million. So I'm really excited to be building this firm with him. I think we're a bit of like yin and yang. I'm pretty public. He's a little bit more private, but um, very like community oriented, family first and, and, you know, servant leadership and transparency are big aspects of like our value structure and how we're seeking to uh, develop our investing process. So 
a lot has happened in the last seven months. <laughs> I'll put it that <laughs> way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot has happened in the last five years ish, mm-hmm. right? From that very first internship with uh, Northrop Grumman, but also since COVID, right? Even in the yeah. last, even in, in the last seven months of 2021 as well. Mm-hmm. That's an amazing overview. There's going to be a whole bunch of, I keep saying there's going to be a whole bunch of different roads we have to go down, but I have to go back before getting to uh, seed to harvest and to the firm and proud of like growth. I have to go back really quick to something I actually mentioned in the beginning, which was when you're working as a, or actually volunteering as a music journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to touch on cold email, but also like, you know, working, getting kind of a taste of PR, PR cycles, yeah. how that sort of industry works. Like what did you take away from sort of the music industry that helps you learn about how PR works? Super interesting. So I got really deep into like guerrilla marketing. SoundCloud Bible was really super great, like technical book on writing cold emails. I think a couple things that I noticed. One, I don't recommend that you cold email people and ask for their time. I think it's really valuable to send a cold email and be like, hey, I love the value that you're adding to this space or I really admire this aspect of what you're doing. Just wanted to drop you a quick note. This often results in phone calls more often than you would think, uh, especially more than just asking for like straight up someone's time. And as for the PR cycles in in music, I had a really interesting conversation with Junie, who's the manager of Lil Pump and Dominic Fike, and he had a really interesting playbook. Him and then uh, one of the producers that was pretty big on SoundCloud in like 2018 had this really interesting like 10-step proven playbook for making artists go viral and it, it had aspects of like you have to include some element of beef with with a larger artist where you can have that foothold mm. in the industry so you know like it was it was interesting looking at the proliferation of internet beef because a lot of the people behind those were friends like talked together were in similar social circles and had very public beef I started to see this more in like tech Twitter, especially like early COVID when people are really butting heads over different ideologies and and things like that. You could see there's a ton of engagement when people were able to pick a side. And I think that there's an interesting aspect of beef marketing, which can be you versus like the broader industry. And, And you see this with, you know, there's like... Microsoft, I think, took out like a full page ad against someone in the New York Times. And there's like these these elements of beef marketing that have descended from hip hop and and in hip hop led to like incredibly violent things, unfortunately, in, in some circumstances. But it's a really interesting characteristic of marketing that I think some people are afraid to dig into. And then by the time you're like, oh, this is like interesting or something we should pursue, it's usually too late. But mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love that you bring up the sort of origins of beef marketing with hip hop because I mean, really like the premise of the show is like, how can we take sort of these disparate industries and ideas and backgrounds and like use them to remix ideas for ourselves? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if you really look at kind of like the lineage of beef marketing, it really goes back to, you know, hip hop. And now we see like Facebook versus Apple around privacy Mm -hmm. stuff. And even with like industry beef, I mean, would you say that that's what you're doing with venture capital and sort of, you know, minority led and Gen Z and like, that's really, you know, generational and or, you know, demographic, right. With the people you're targeting and sort of the message that you're putting out. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. I think there's an element of adjectives that I'm not a huge fan of. It's, it's kind of a double-edged sword saying, 
you know, like identifying as a Gen Z investor is interesting because, you know, I am 22 and I am an investor, but that's like a Gen Z investor is not my whole brand. Like I'm, I'm looking right. to invest in really, Josh and myself are looking to invest in, in really great founders, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're like always going to be Gen Z or it's going to be like the hottest Gen Z thing. We do mm-hmm. like find a lot of those companies because those folks are usually talking to like you know, 50 year old dudes and they hop on the phone with us and they're like, oh, cool. I'm comfortable right now. And this is like an environment that I don't experience much. And so I would say I have a couple rules with like how I interact online. But one of my strongest ones is that I'm never going to to take the words from my old coworker and, and now a current LP Taylor. I'm never going to yuck someone else's yum. You know, mm. like people have their things. That's great. I'm not really going to to say anything negative about someone who's trying to push for something in their in their own field I would say that you know I I want the the state not the sizzle I just want to do good work and if I'm recognized for that great but I just want to know at the end of the day that like I'm doing great work investing in founders and building an intentionally diverse portfolio that's super important to me and 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 driving returns to our lps so i'd say it's less beef and more just that's the way that i want to work and with intentionality around diversity and inclusion is important to us yeah well you have to like stand for something right and sometimes yeah standing for something also means like whether it's directly or indirectly standing against something else yeah people can make those inferences or you can you know very like explicitly state you know what it is that you are against but at the mm-hmm. end of the day everyone stands for something and you have to sort of put a flag in the ground and say okay this is what we're about right and yeah it doesn't have to be beef per se but that can yeah. create beef with other people maybe <laughs> just <laughs> through through what you're doing yeah yeah i think that's an interesting aspect of it especially when you're in the in the impact world everyone has like different ideas of of how you're supposed to do impact which is interesting when there's like the same intention but different execution and then there's like judgment around that like execution it's kind of like everyone is or i I believe that like everyone is kind of trying their best to make this industry more diverse and you know we're trying our best and that's all you can kind of hope for at the end of the day yeah one of the other things i wanted to just touch on a little bit more because I know people listening are going to be sort of screaming like, okay, wait, tell us the secrets <laughs> to, you know, you're, you're meeting with all these interesting, notable people. You're flying out to places like New York and getting in contact with all the right people, largely through cold uh, email, cold outreach, mm-hmm. cold DMs. Do you have like a framework or a process or just sort of like a methodology to how you get in touch with these people? Yeah, I actually wrote, so I got invited to do like a cold outreach workshop for the Finance and Investment Society at SDSU in March of 2020, which ended up being very well-timed because everyone was online and, you know, it wasn't as easy to meet people in person then. And so what I touched on earlier about, you know, just admiring people from afar, I think that that's like one of the cooler things that you can do with cold outreach is just reach out to people and be like, Hey, like, I love this piece of work that you did. And that's it. And you don't have to go any further than that. I think that I read an interesting article about how like, you used to have people come and knock on your door. And that was and then they would like go away if you weren't there. But now in like the internet age, like emails don't go away. They're just like buffered for when you come back to Mm. them. And so I think that if you really appreciate someone and just want to like say that, 
it, that's an awesome email to get because it doesn't necessarily have like an action item attached and it's just like a nice email. It's like the difference of getting ad mail in the mail versus like getting a letter from one of your friends. It's like, oh, this is like super nice of this person to send that like, and, and you appreciate that. And I have like a little folder of like those emails. And so I think that is you don't have to ask for anything or provide anything to add value to someone. I think that a really strong cold email can just be, hey, I love what you're doing and this is kind of like my background and, and why it's important to me. I reached out to Beth Comstock when she wrote her book on intrapreneurship, which was a really interesting book of her time at GE. And I reached out and I was like, hey, I love this book. Like this is, you know, I was at Northrop at the time and that was really influential in seeing how I was helping like manage a team of interns and within a broader organization. And I was like, this is super sick. And she wrote back, she was like, thank you so much. You know, that was, that was kind of like it. But I think that that can lead to things in the future, you know, just have that long-term vision of this is probably not the last time I'm going to interact with this person. And so I'll just like keep it brief, like touch base with them. Yeah. Yeah. It's really just a case study of zigging when others are zagging. And if everyone's asking for something in an email, just don't ask for anything. And then now all of a sudden you have their attention slash trust and, you know, there's sort of an open door for something later down the road, probably not immediately. Right. Cause then it's sort of, you know, unless there's like a conversation that evolves out of it, but just simply being different can be enough and doing the opposite can be enough in getting someone's attention. Yeah, absolutely. I think it takes a really long time to like get your email style less formal. It took me probably like Mm. four or five years of pretty consistent emailing to not write like, dear Ms, you know, whoever I'm emailing, it was like, hey, you know, first name, love this. I'm Paige. This has been my story. Thanks. It's, it's been funny. Like I've been coaching this venture capital competition team and we're like selecting applicants and it's funny to like read the emails. I see myself in them. It's like, super formal and people don't really get email classes in like college or high school it's not like hey here's how to write like a casual email in a professional world it's all of these people who have come in like learning how to write cover letters in this super formal way and I think that there's something to be said for you know having like a bit bit more like authentic to how you talk style of emailing and some people yeah, probably I'm talking don't as... like that I do that but <laughs> that's what I do no but yeah, especially when everything's online and it's sort of yeah. like a giveaway, right? If it's like too overly respectful, it's like, well, this person is, you know, they can't think for themselves and they, mm-hmm. you know, it just maybe like doesn't show that they're cutting edge, that they have experience and sort of like yeah, the, the more... Yeah, it takes a while to like get, get comfortable with yourself. I yeah. like, I definitely like spent a bunch of years doing that. So not yeah. to knock, but it's, I think that transition is really important. There was another thing that Peach Man trusted about sort of your experience and what you've done before we get to some of the other stuff, which was selling a Python bot to Instagrammers. (laughs) Is that true? (laughs) Yes. This is my junior year. And so we had this like entrepreneurship challenge where we had to sell like $500 of something. Like we just had to make $500 in a period of three months. And I had basically like forked this Python bot on Instagram that ran on a Chrome browser and would go through your Instagram go through like different tags and like and comment on pictures and it was actually interesting I ran it on my mom's account so she's an artist and it would like pinpoint people who are also doing plein air paintings and also like in the SoCal area and it would like it created this really incredible engagement channel because the audience that you were growing was different from running paid ads Uh, it's really hard to like specify like 
I want to target, you know, the super specific sector of people. And so I learned a lot about kind of organic and guerrilla marketing through that. But it was really funny because I think we were charging like $25 a month and things were duct taped together. And I was ducking out of my computer science classes, like being like, hey, this is Paige's assistant. Like, let me get you her. And then I was like, hi, this is Paige. And it was so funny because I think it took a a while to get comfortable with asking for more money because... You know, I, it was just like kind of getting by in college. And I was like, yeah, $25 is a lot. Like that's more than I'd pay for software. And mm. looking back, I don't think that $25 a month necessarily warrants like 24-7 white glove customer service from the person running the software company. But I learned a lot from that experience for sure. And, you know, had a couple harrowing experiences with Instagram API, like noticing things and they were constantly updating it to, to get away from like bots and stuff like that. So I ended up stopping doing that, but it, I made $500. So I got my like award for Mission doing success. that for my like yeah. entrepreneurship class. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was the point of it. But it was, yeah, I made a couple like interesting clients. Like I had this photographer who would shoot for like Vogue and then I had a snowboarding shop in Massachusetts and I would like run the bot to find clients. So it'd be like commenting like, Hey, like love what you're working oh, on right. for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So it was fun. It was, it was good. I think I learned a lot how to approach like Twitter from an organic perspective. Well, from like doing Instagram from like an organic, mm. but automated perspective. So yeah. Right. Where then you're just commenting on people's stuff and you're saying, hey, I like it or mm-hmm. super cool. Or you're just like, again, these like non-ask, non-spammy ways of just engaging with people. and Yeah, exactly. And, and people like recognize you showing up in the comment section. I want to say I try and produce more content. It's been, you know, I've been spending more time prioritizing like supporting portfolio founders and, and building like relationships with our LPs. But I'm really excited to dig back into getting some content out. But right now it's like mm-hmm. 90% is just like appreciation or like retweeting people's things that are super exciting. And I think people can undervalue the that. Yeah, that part of it for sure. Mm-hmm. I actually I wanted to get to to Twitter here in a second, but again I have one more tangent I have to yeah, go down before some of the some of the main ones. But can you explain the eye mouth eye and sort of that project, your involvement, mm-hmm. what happened? I actually remember seeing it sort of like this phenomenon where all of a sudden <laughs> in someone's name or bio there was this interesting looking you know emoji character and it just like exploded overnight and all of a sudden yeah. it was everywhere and it's a really a phenomenon online yeah we're coming up on the one year anniversary i keep telling myself i'm gonna write a reflection on it but it's one of those things where kind of the i have a sticker like on my wall that says like it is what it is yes please and it's one of like the original stickers that we made it's like it doesn't it's not even sticky anymore because i've had it for so long but <laughs> Yeah, I'm off. I started as just a bunch of kids in their parents' houses and their childhood bedrooms, and we all just started putting like the I'm off. I in our in our Twitter bio, and then it was my my friend Geffen had had it, and I DM'd her, and I was like, "What's what's up with this? Like, what's going on?" She's like, "Oh, add it to your like Twitter handle, and then you'll find out." So when I added it to my Twitter handle, I was like, added into this huge group chat of like a bunch of I would say like pretty new grads and a lot of us were had similar experiences of being underrepresented in tech there it was like a pretty high percentage of of people of color as well and and we're all just kind of vibing in there and like sending memes 
and this was kind of like peak manic energy period of quarantine I think it was like three or four months in and it's kind of getting to the point where we're like okay this is like not this is not gonna end anytime soon and yeah so we're just like making memes and then a lot of us were like in the tech twitter space and so a lot of similar people followed us and so we would like clog their entire feed with like all of these things and everyone was like oh my gosh what's happening what's happening and it was funny because a lot of us had felt excluded from tech and it was interesting to see the same people who had portrayed that level of exclusivity being like, oh, let me in, let me in, like, this isn't fair, this isn't fair. And it's like, okay, you feel this way about, you know, like three emojis, you know, how do you think that a lot of us feel about like being like locked out of really high paying jobs? Mm. (laughs) It's like, okay, now you like start to understand it. And and so it started as kind of like this this movement and statement against the exclusivity of, of tech Twitter. I think at the time, like Clubhouse was just launching out of beta and everyone was like tweeting their screenshots and it was super cool and everyone was asking for invites off the wait list and things like that. And we're like, oh, we should make like a social audio app. And so it, we had this massive Figma file. There was like 70 people on Discord, four different voice channels. We were running like merch channels like meme channels we had this massive figma of like mock-ups the audio app and we actually designed like a pretty sick audio app my role i would say was kind of like synthesizing information from different channels and like relaying it back to people and kind of like helping just everyone like stay informed and so i think i was on that discord for like 12 hours my parents like what is going on in your room (laughs) They're hearing like all these like mumbled, like yelling and and things like that. And so we started tweeting like pictures of this like audio listening app and everyone's like, oh my gosh, I want an invite. And we're like, okay, cool. Like if you want an invite, you have to donate to like the Loveland Foundation or therapy for black women and girls. And we were collecting all of these receipts and we're like, yeah, we're moving up on the wait list, but there's no app. And we ended up raising like around $200,000 for organizations supporting Black Lives. This was, a, this was a kind of the peak of the Black Lives Matter movement last summer. And it was incredible to, to be a part of that. And it was, I learned a lot about virality. So people will like very much speak their minds. And I think it was hard to see people I thought of myself as close being like, oh, this is very like exclusionary and, you know, this and that. And and I think it's like, you know, you kind of like plant your flag and you and you stand for what you stand for and people are going to be upset about the way that you execute. Learned about like public apology. We had kind of a snafu with a shirt that went out and we had to like, not had to, but, you know, we like apologize, take ownership and here's our action items for like how we're going to do things differently And then it all coincided with like a product tent launch, got like 600 upvotes. We got nominated for like their yearly awards ceremony. But I made like a lot of really close friends from that. So I have like a couple that I like ended up investing in. One is like Marlon Stevenson's Ask Impulse. They're like crazy engagement in like the 18 to 24 category with people like giving market feedback for all of these brands like Coach and Teflar and things like that. And so that's been really cool too. He like helped me with the book as well. And it taught me a lot about like internet friendship and how a small group of coordinated people can make a big splash. It just takes, it takes, you know, like people aligned with the same mission. So yeah, it was, it was a really incredible experience. And I think fondly of my time, I think the funniest part was everyone trying to like deconstruct our like 
careful planning. And I was like, there was no careful planning. Like we were just like throwing spaghetti at the wall, seeing what stuck, like, you know, trying to cope with our mistakes that we were making along the way. And, you know, with 70 people coordinating across the globe, it was a little difficult, but yeah, that was, that was yeah. our thigh. It was lightning in a bottle, right? It's, it's yeah. the zeitgeist. It's, you tap into pop culture for a second and you have it and you can try to contain it, but you know, you can't really reverse engineer it or, yeah. you know, replicate it that much. And I'm curious to get your take on, you know, that's really a case study on just how, I, I think just in the last year we've seen how fast and quickly things accelerate mm-hmm. things like COVID and crypto and memes, meme stocks, right? It's just like everything happens you know, what used to take a decade now takes like a week, right? It's mm-hmm. just everything is so quick, so fast. People move, they coordinate globally. Does that change the way that you think about connecting with people, with marketing, with making something happen? Do you do you try to, you know, harness that lightning in a bottle a little bit? Yeah. Is there some kind of magic there or is it just, you know, you let it happen and it happens when it happens? It's funny. I was actually, so when I was at Work OS, I think right when I joined, I was like, let's do memes. Let's do memes on the Twitter like people love them, they react to them. The great thing about memes is like they're almost the densest way that you can communicate because they have so much richness in context where you have to understand not only the context of like the meme and kind of its lineage to understand the like broader concept behind it, but also whatever is the the context, like the of the content that that it's displaying. And so I think that memes are like an incredible way to communicate and and like Turner Novak has been killing it on like the meme front in in venture. And so I think that it was funny because I think maybe like seven months after I started, our CEO started posting memes and he was like, this is crazy. We're getting so much engagement. And it was funny because before he was like, oh yeah, like I don't think developers will respond well. Like this seems kind of like childlike. And it's like, Exactly. Like we don't get enough childlike playtime anymore. Everything's so serious and buttoned up and memes are about like having fun and making a splash and and making me put people laugh. Like that's, you know, one of the most powerful human emotions is, you know, having like an API company make you laugh on, on Twitter is, is pretty out of the ordinary. And I think that a lot of people take themselves really seriously in marketing. And while I think it's important to have intentionality behind what you're doing, I love people who are are playful with the way that they do marketing. And you can tell it really it really like shows through that you're like, "Oh, this is unique to you and what you're doing." So, yeah. Yeah, 100%. I mean, memes are a fascinating like I said, like method of communication. I think one because it's interesting how a lot of, you know, like texting, email, social platforms, like usually they cater to one type of person or generation than another but like mm-hmm. like my mom loves memes on facebook and like yeah sorry about like old people share memes all the time it's really like, really young people like five-year-olds share memes too like it's just like this universal place and method that people communicate but also like you said there's something to making people laugh and like irony and especially in industries where everyone takes themselves so seriously like there's all this pent up like like people are so tight and like if it's things are really, really serious and it's all this pent up humor that's just waiting to be released. Right. And like exactly. a meme is just like the perfect vehicle to get it out there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that as well. And I think that's a big aspect of like how Josh and I, you know, want to portray like the behind genius ventures brand is like 
playful is is an aspect of that and we can afford to do that because we are different and like that's just part of what we're doing and it's hard to do that with with a brand that has like esteemed brand equity it's harder Mm. to like be playful with that but it's it's fun building like a playful brand from the ground up so speaking of twitter as i understand it seed to harvest actually is sort of a product of twitter and that it started as Mm -hmm. a joke right Mm mm-hmm yeah, it was funny. My friend Nikhil had published a, a book about medical trials. And I was like, oh, this is a genius medium. Like, I love, you know, a children's book about whatever. Because it's not necessarily like venture capital for dummies or, you know, mm. something like super beginner. It takes so much simplification to write a children's book. And I think that's what really drove me to to like tweet that and then I was like hey everyone like this is awesome I'm gonna do this about venture you know let me know who wants to read the first draft and I was like okay cool like five people reply and then it was 80 dms with emails and and then I was like oh I'm gonna have to write this aren't I and (laughs) and I was like okay cool I had like a page because I was like trying to explain to my parents how like venture worked and how the different like social and financial dynamics of it worked and I was like cool I'll just like expand this and I was like oh I really need an analogy because these are very abstract concepts and nothing really like you know as safe as a piece of paper like the money is often only transferred through digital avenues there's not really like a physical representation of it Mm. and I was like okay cool like think about it until Thursday that was kind of like my self-prescribed deadline and I had this dream I woke up Thursday morning And it was this farmer and she was going out to the field and she had had like one little plant in in her house that had grown and then she built a greenhouse with one of her friends and then they started gardening together and producing, you know, like little like lemon trees and things like that. And then like the end of the dream was like this crazy farm and it had like three different fields with fruits in like different stages of harvest. And I was like, oh, that's it. Like seed to harvest. Like that's Hmm. what being a venture capitalist is like. It's like a farmer. Like you, you don't have complete control over how a company grows, but you do have like tools and resources to help support those founders. And so I wrote that all out. Like I was like sweating, like hopped out of bed. I wrote like 12 (laughs) pages and I sent it out to these 80 emails and the responses I got back were incredible. It was kind of a range from people like my my 87-year-old grandma who used to be a first and second grade teacher. And she was like, oh, this is so like easy to understand and, and so cool that you're doing this. And then there was like people who were showing it to their five-year-old kids and they're like, mm. oh, this is super interesting. Like this is what your mom does. And I think that I realized I had kind of struck gold at that moment where I was like, this is so cool that such a broad range of people can understand a really complicated topic. And so that's that's how it originated. And then I laid out these pages on the floor of my apartment. I had this clipboard that I would work on. I would sit in my chair right here and look out the window and like work on this book over and over and over and over again. And it was, it was hard. Like I turned on like a, a, like a bunch of nights where like my roommates were doing things to stay in and, and write this book. And by August I had 
40 pages laid out on the floor of my tiny apartment. And I was like, okay, this is my second job. Like, this is what I want to write about. It's basically like how a venture capital firm is formed, how venture capitalists make decisions, how they support companies after that, how they raise money from limited partners. And I think one of the most incredible aspects of it was working with my brother. He um, was 17 when the project started. He's 18 now. And to see him grow and develop from someone who has like a passion for art and is an incredibly talented illustrator to like working on a full scale book. Like it was 40 Mm. pieces of original art that he did over a period of three months, which was just an incredible turnaround. Most people I had talked to, yeah, most people I had talked to had quoted about like six months to do it. And Owen did it not having done a project like this before in like three months. So yeah, it was insane and I have like, I just got a bunch of copies and this is like an author copy, but I was really excited that I got to work on it with Owen. And I think like one of the most important parts is venture is really not diverse. And the way that I illustrated the book, I wanted to make sure I have like a lot of diversity. So these are like all diverse characters and it's been really fun to get pictures of of like investors that are like women and people of color sending it of their kids and they're like hey, this is so cool i'm finally represented and in, in a piece of mm. like literature about this industry so it started as a way to explain to my parents what i was geeking out about and it blossomed <laughs> into a movement of like representation and democratization of investing and kind of threw me into the world of investing as well Super powerful. Yeah. I mean, I just, I'm a huge fan of it. And uh, I think that the execution has been uh, amazing just from concept to actual, you know, having the book in your hands is, is a feat in and of itself. Speaking of execution, I'm curious if you can kind of nerd out with me for a second on the marketing strategy for the book and just walk me through like what your thoughts (laughs) and approaches are to getting it into people's hands, you know, and actually realizing the potential of the book and, and uh, making sales. Yeah, this is interesting. I was like just talking about this and I think like for for some aspects of it, like I feel a bit of like pressure to do a lot more with it. And then there's kind of that part of me that's like, okay, like let it kind of like organically happen, like have these moments where you can speak to seed to harvest and its importance. But I think like the thing for me is I didn't want to do a huge splashy launch because this is something that I want to feel timeless like specifically why I wrote it with like not a ton of like you know allusions to what's going on in the industry right now and so I had this whole notion doc of like launch ideas and things like that and how it ended up launching was me and the team I was working with to do the formatting where we're like keep we kept submitting it kept submitting it it was wrong in formatting this was off and <laughs> fudging with like the trim sizes and it it was just like not uploading and we're like oh this is so annoying and so it ended up getting submitted and was ready for publish and I got an email like hey your book's live on Amazon and I was like oh shoot I haven't done like any of the things on this notion doc and so I ended up just like writing from the heart I wrote a tweet thread about like what the book meant to me and and how like I had written it with my brother and it had blossomed from a seed to a harvest and, and made me an investor along the way and people really resonated with it. It went like a little viral. I think it was like 300,000 impressions or something like that. And I sold like hundreds of copies of the book. And for me, that was like a feed in itself was, you know, someone actually buying the book. 
I think that there's always people who are gonna like recommend like what you can or or like all of the possibilities of like doing all of these things. But I think for me, having a really narrow focus on you know getting the word out about the book and then also building this firm in tandem you know, for me, like driving returns to my LPs and supporting our portfolio founders have now like shifted to my top priority. And Mm. so with the book, it was kind of like I did that tweet and then I sent a couple emails out, but it was really all organic. So it's been incredible to see like people have been tweeting it like every other day. And I love getting, I, um, you know, like that childlike aspect of play is really important to me. And obviously I live my life with family first values and So I think one of my favorite things is getting to see pictures of the book or like bringing it when I meet people's families, whether they're like LPs, like I was in um, Paso Robles for like a wine weekend with my family and I ended up meeting one of my LPs, Cece Schnug of Boom Ventures, and she had her little one with her and I was like able to give him a book and he was like, oh my gosh, like this is so cool. And he was like, reading it when we were talking and I think it's been a really powerful avenue to get to know people's families because like you said venture is a pretty buttoned up world and I think Mm. that not a lot of people have avenues to talk about that and Seed to Harvest gave them one and I love I love hearing about how people are like oh I have I just recorded a podcast with KP Coffee with Creators and he's like oh I just got a book for my newborn son and I was like oh my gosh congratulations and those conversations would just never happen without seed to harvest so yeah 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 I mean there's there's endless benefits besides just the the actual sales numbers and you know yeah, reach and, and impressions was, and things like that and it was kind of like I wasn't I wasn't in this to make money and I'm I'm not yeah. in in things to make money like I, I want to make an impact and a lot of the times, you know, some aspect of that is measured through money, but I think a lot of it is measured through, you know, I hope a girl picks that book up when she's, you know, 12 or something and realizes that she can also pursue this path. And I think that that is way more powerful than like any any number of book sales. Yeah. I mean, the good news too is that a book is uh, really a perennial seller, you know, and especially yeah. a kid's book is, it, it is a timeless asset and something to pick up can pick someone can pick up at any point in their life or any time you know venture capital changes but it doesn't change all that much right the yeah. concepts will like, probably stay true for the next hundred or so years yeah and the alternative to this is like picking up like a 400 page copy of like venture deals there's not like an easily right. digestible <laughs> uh, way to understand venture like i think outside of seed harvest i've looked like believe me i've been curating curating all these resources and mm-hmm. That was like one aspect that was really missing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned before that now your number one priority is returning uh, capital and <laughs> and you know making making the most of portfolio companies and sort of mm-hmm. that's your number one priority is founders and LPs. There's a lot of talk in VC about being a value add investor. I'm curious what your take is on that and what you do, what you specialize in, and just the ways that you see that you can help founders uh, and ultimately how that translates to LPs later down the road. Sure. So I would say Josh and I focus really heavily on specifically building relationships with downstream funds. So when you're investing at an early stage, one of the most important success metrics as a fund is how many of your companies get the next round of funding. And so we built really deep relationships with hundreds of venture capitalists across the the like software industries that we invest in, mostly like B2B and B2C. 
And then aside from that, Josh works really heavily on recruiting. So he works to recruit specifically like designers and engineers. And then I focus mainly on community and content strategy. So for example, one of the companies that I invested in through the syndicate is Wellness. And when they came to me, one of the things that they requested when they were when we were talking about working together was building out their community strategy because it, I think it's kind of become like this hot topic and yeah. people are, you know, throwing people together in a Slack channel and calling it a day. And I think that people have seen how the way that I built my community. I haven't really focused on like the growth of my followers or anything like that. It's more like the quality of the interaction that I get to have with the people that are in my community. And so I work pretty closely with founders on helping develop strategies around that and then using content to kind of showcase the community and people in it, which is a big driver of product like growth. And so at WorkOS, I spent a lot of time writing case studies for some of our marquee customers, including like Webflow, Hopin, and that led to a lot of inbound leads because I think it takes your potential customers seeing themselves in another company or maybe from an aspirational perspective wanting to get to that growth rate or you know landing big enterprise customers to drive that inbound lead and so I work with a lot of companies also on developing that content strategy to drive the the inbound leads because I think that's a really powerful avenue to build a relationship and kind of get people familiar with what you do and who you serve before they even get on the phone with you. This is how I've built like the the Twitter content that I do as well. It's like, okay, has someone asked me this question like three to five times? And then how can I build a piece of content that's really thoughtful and can help scale my time in an exponential fashion? Because if someone asks me this again, I don't necessarily want to get on a 30 minute phone call and repeat exactly what I said. I want to spend eight hours writing a piece of content it's really great and I can send out and it will be helpful to a lot more people than just one. So I work with a lot of founders on like developing those. And then a bit of PR and earned media. So I've been featured in places like the Washington Post and the San Diego Union Tribune. And so I work with founders on building earned media presences as well. I think that the most important aspect that gets left out of pitches is often the story. You know, people don't want to hear about numbers or products they want to be hear about people and the stories of what these platforms or software in enable those people to do whether that's to live better lives or produce better like returns for their investors or like dramatically change the lives of their families and i think that that aspect of storytelling is a common thread that that runs through a lot of what we do as well yeah it's really really powerful I'm curious if you, if you can also give a take on working with companies in this kind of product-led growth function, and mm-hmm. that's like the model, the strategy that you're going after. What are some of the common challenges and mistakes you see companies have with trying to make it work and and, and do product-led growth, right? Actually yeah. make it happen for them. It's hard. So the year that I was at WorkOS, we made a transition from sales-led to product-led growth, and I was a developer success engineer. So it was very hands-on, giving like hundreds of technical demos to founders, PMs, and developers. 
And during that time, we made a transition to product-led growth. And so a lot of our pre-sales efforts shifted to support efforts. A lot of our initial questions were handled over email rather than calls. And then we spent a lot of time with like support and shared Slack channels. And I think some of the, the challenges that we overcame during that transition period were more basic than you would think and harder to do the right way than you think. Mm -hmm. So a couple of things that that we thought through really intentionally was onboarding. So you want to make sure that in the onboarding process, you get the amount of information that you need, not necessarily the amount of information that you want. Hopefully you can infer some of that through the user's use of your product, but you want to be able to have them sign up and understand how to use their software without hopping on like a 30 minute demo call. And so thinking through what is the flow when someone totally new to the software, which we're deeply entrenched in, you know, we know inside and out, we know all the capabilities. How do we take ourselves out of that and come back to it with fresh eyes? And I think a lot of this is done through customer interviews and they have to be also customers that maybe don't, haven't liked their experience and, and thinking about how can we change it to better support you. And if, they're not a great fit, then thinking through, okay, what is the messaging that made them come to us, even though we're not the greatest fit for them? And thinking through how we can be more intentional about both our onboarding messaging, our external messaging, so that people can really, you know, one of the core tenets of product-led growth is having product evangelists within a larger organization of your product. And so you need to do so much sales enablement in order to, or, or we did, needed to do so much sales enablement for those product champions within organizations so that contracts could you know, land and expand and grow into uh, larger ACV con contracts. So this is mainly done through developing internal sales enablement tools and then making those external because you kind of have to train the people that first interact with your software to be product evangelists to their whole company. You know, when I, we started behind Genius Ventures where we have like a pretty, I'd say, thorough software stack. And I was like, okay, cool. I know I'm going to use Typeform. I know I'm going to use Close for our CRM. I know how to set up these automations through Zapier. I was like, I already had an idea of the tech stack that I wanted to use because those products had done such a great job, like, evan like helping me evangelize them to Josh or like helping them evangelize me to them to our portfolio founders. So I think it was like onboarding, sales enablement of those product champions, and then billing. <laughs> People, understandably, are really emphasize like the importance of a good billing experience, communicating your pricing from a clear perspective when you're not talking to someone on the phone and can't clarify a certain pricing point. I think pricing is really difficult when you're in software because it takes a while to figure out that value metric where someone's like, oh, I need this feature oh, I have to put a credit card in, like, whatever. I need this feature right now versus, oh, I have to put in a credit card, but I don't really see the value in the product yet. So, like, I don't care. I'll just, like, leave this product. And so I think that when, where, and how you introduce billing in your product is a really, it, it's a challenge that, like, continues throughout uh, a product. So, you know, when you grow larger into the enterprise, you add on more parts of your product. And so there's more places where you could introduce messaging about billing and and like complications within your pricing structure and so I think that that's definitely something that we thought really intentionally about and I, I honestly one of my favorite 
places to work with founders on is like in that pricing and messaging strategy. I was just talking to someone the other day about pride of like growth and uh, they were asking, you know, what are people doing? What are the tactics the strategies? Mm-hmm. And I was like, look, honestly, like half the battle or maybe even more than half the battle of pride of like growth is just pricing. And it's just, how yeah. do you figure out what those levers and metrics and, and, and thresholds are that get people to feel the need to go from free to paid or from paid to the next, you know, mm-hmm. pricing plan or, you know, talking to sales at that point, right. And sort of flipping the switch. And it's, you know, cause when you think about a sales, sales led organization, a lot of it is, okay, well let's hop on the phone. Let's run through our pricing model with someone with well, product led. You have to walk them through a lot of that pricing stuff asynchronously. Right. And they yeah. have to, you have to walk them through it themselves. And, and getting that, nailing that down, it's really, really difficult because if you can't, then there is no product-led growth, right? You just have a product-led <laughs> company, but no growth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that that's been an aspect of how we're looking to build the, the firm as well is in a way where we can have founders look at a lot of our information and, and our operating principles and, and how we work. Um, Josh and I are, are focusing pretty heavily on this. And how do we like best communicate what out what we're looking for and like what we provide from an investor perspective to founders so we don't waste their time during fundraising we find really good fits for the folks that are inbound and people like other investors know what to send us because they're like oh cool like Paige and Josh like to look at like pre-seed and seed product like growth companies and kind of the intersections of future and work future of work and future of play and so that enablement is a really important part of of everything. Yeah. 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 It's a great perspective for other investors as well, but also when you're evaluating at companies to invest in or just founders, you know, who are interested prospects, if you will, mm-hmm. are you thinking about marketing, distribution, product like growth at that stage? You know, like you mentioned earlier, palette, which is, you know, enables creators to monetize sort of their, that ne- their network and audience through something like a job board. Is that like a, a core tenant that you're looking for? And in, in your investment thesis is their ability to to market and distribute and, and grow from a product-led perspective? Yeah, pulling on one of the threads from earlier around storytelling, that's one of the most important aspects that Josh and I think about when we meet with a founder. I would say we're very people-first investors, and we want to invest in in people that can tell great stories at scale, and especially when it relates to selling their software to folks and and helping those people evangelize those products within larger organizations. And so a lot of what we look for is people that can tell great stories, not only to investors, but also to prospective employees or users, because ultimately that's what will enable them, in, in our opinion, to build a really great company at scale and a bit leaner. I think that stories and content scale in a similar fashion to software because they're not easily monetizable. They have been disregarded by the wider community, but I do think that they hold a power that is not specifically measured in, in dollar signs or cost per click, but it can be really valuable if done the right way. So that I would say we're thinking really critically about that aspect. And then we kind of think through a different framework of, you know, team industry fit. Like, is this the company that these people that we're investing in want to work on for the next 10 years? And would they work on it if they had no funding? And, you know, are they throwing away those like conventional aspects of success to pursue this idea? 
and then it goes through and go through kind of like the product market fit and at an early stage you'll often not have any revenue we look for post product companies because then we can take a look at what their distribution model has been so far and how that's working i think that very customer driven folks are are what we like to see at WorkWest, we had the saying of like, get on the bus. Like all of our engineers would like get on the bus with our developer success engineers and we would do like sales demos and support calls together. And so our engineers would be very acutely aware of the, the problems that we were solving for the developers we were working with. And I think that that characteristic is an aspect of like the lean startup, which I learned about in college and have kind of brought out in practice in, in building this firm and, and also thinking through like content that's super important to us and then also a big aspect that i don't think a lot of people think about is two aspects of fund fit so one is is the ownership that we're going to get in this company enough to generate a fund returning investment if it's not then that's a problem because in venture funds traditionally you only have you know one or two home runs and then a couple folks that fall out around you know like like a 10x or something like that but you really need to have all of your investments be bets that you think could return the fund and then also timing. So venture is also kind of a cash flow game when you're when you're building a firm and you do a first close, then you have capital on hand. But walking through that with founders where you maybe haven't gone to your first close yet and you're trying to close commitments in competitive rounds and telling them about like wiring time frame and sometimes folks will aren't raising as much and so they'll need that money immediately and that's mm. a part of their decision framework and so i think that timing aspect is fortunately or unfortunately a big part of decisions that that both like the founders timeline and the the investors timeline coincide with it's difficult it's it's a dance right yeah it's um, it's a it's a fun dance <laughs> yeah so I know that Gen Z isn't like your whole brand, right? Mm-hmm. But that's obviously one of the things that you have a unique perspective on and it's, you know, part of the investment thesis. So I'm curious what you think that everyone can learn from Gen Z about, you know, like what comes naturally to Gen Z to creator first or Gen Z first founders and companies? What do they do better than other generations or what do they just have a unique advantage on? Yeah, for most of us, we've grown up on the internet. When I was... Mm, like seven I think my parents got this like massive Sony computer and it was like you know like this wide on the back and you couldn't pick it up and I don't think we moved it for the first like five years of us having it the only time we moved it was when we moved it into the garage when we got uh, an iMac and you know we were the kind of like my generation was the first to really grow up with that internet internet native aspect very broadly like most people had like cell phones when they were in sixth grade and and were very proficient at using them and and so i think like this internet native capability of our generation has has unlocked an incredible learning potential for a lot of people who have come from different different places like around the u.s and around the world to participate in that global internet economy we've invested in founders across like from Boulder to Austin to Toronto to New York to LA and and I think that it empowers this like ability to see through like obviously like be very 
intentional about including the background of where people come from but you can kind of make friends anywhere online like I have a lot of internet friends who I've never met in person but still feel like deeply connected to and I think that it's pretty normal for our generation to have those like deep internet connections especially because of COVID like I you know I I wasn't around my friends for most of COVID and and I was kind of like oh okay how do I like generate human connection and building like online friendships and then also just this innate understanding of how the internet works you kind of understand like (laughs) there's an interesting acceptance of your data just being tracked everywhere and it's funny my friend was talking about it and they're like yeah I don't care that like TikTok tracks everything that I do because their algorithm's like so incredible and like it's entertaining every time I watch it because it knows exactly what I want to see TikTok has been really big for like growth and a lot of the companies that that we've worked with because it's a discovery oriented platform instead of like a friends oriented platform where like Facebook and Instagram is like, hey, you know, put your context list on and like, let's get all of your friends on. And with TikTok, it's like, hey, we're going to provide like the most insane content that you can possibly find that's exactly accurate to what you're looking for. And then make that super shareable and really easy to create. I think they've lowered the bar for creation because before, you know, people would like make a thing in iMovie and then have to text it to themselves and then have to put it on Instagram and then Instagram would make the quality less. And with TikTok, it's super-native creation tools and really easy to share and it's discovery-oriented, so it's not... You know, you can make a dancing video or you can make a video about something you're passionate about and you don't really have to worry as much about, you know, what are my friends going to think? Is this like in my brand? You can kind of reinvent yourself online. So I think that like reinvention online is interesting, kind of like the metaverse personalities that I'm seeing pop up. So beginning to wrap up here, I'd love to take a peek at your swipe file as it were and just into some marketing examples, campaigns, ads, landing pages, just content in general mm-hmm. uh, that you think was worthy of saving or just kind of cream of the crop, what you would, you know, showcase in a magazine or kind of put as like, these are the top examples of what Paige thinks are is amazing marketing, whatever that means. Yeah. Um, um, do you have a few examples you could walk me through? Sure. Okay. One, Matthew McConaughey's launch of Green Lights, his new book has been absolutely insane. He's done a really cool job with putting together a, an omni-channel media presence where he was on like a ton of podcasts at once and He's just a super authentic and funny guy to listen to. So it's always interesting. I listened to probably four or five of his interviews and they were all different, covered different topics. And he has Mm. great stories. And then he also put together an incredible portfolio of different... I had a bunch of them like a bookmarked when, when I was going through like the marketing for my book of like him talking and writing and like all this multimedia and the story behind it. I think that's one of my favorite aspects of creative marketing is the process behind making things. I've been seeing some really cool ads from fashion companies about going through like, this is the ethical factory that we make this dress in. And this is like how it gets shipped to like the place that it's going. And I see this a lot with artists. So another example would be like Sean Brown, who I think is like one of the most talented and underrated artists of our generation. He's worked with a lot of folks in kind of like the rap and hip hop world to do merch, but he's also just done a lot of really interesting things with his personal brand. So he makes like these CD rugs that have gone viral 
and these like incense hands that are cast out of concrete and he is just so playful with the medium that he works in. I think a lot of people stick to a medium and for him like the medium is is not fixed and I think that that's like a more interesting thing that I'm seeing in marketing is like having different different like mediums to be playful with so yeah I've been I've been thinking a lot about about that and then also like physical and out of home marketing so one of the companies we invested in is is Strive and they connect rideshare drivers with musicians who are like looking to stream their music and like Uh do kind of like very specified geo launches of new music and and get like feedback on that and I think that out of home advertising is really going to spike in the next couple years especially with like COVID slowing down in the U.S. things opening up more. I think out of home advertising has really been neglected for the past year whether that's like billboards like physical items even like the way that people like dress and things like that I think it's going to be really interesting to watch like the next couple years and and see where things shake out with like the out of home space. Fantastic examples. I love that. Not did not disappoint at all. Well, final question for you. When I say everything is marketing, title of the show, what does that mean to you? What comes to mind? For me, when I think about everything being marketing, I think there's an opportunity to tell a story about everything that you're doing. And that can be your morning walk to get coffee, or it can be how you put together a book and I think that a lot of people underestimate the larger themes that you can pull into smaller stories and I think that you've done an incredible job with the podcast bringing out those larger themes within smaller stories of what people are working on oh I appreciate that Paige it's been amazing getting to to chat get to know you hear all of your stories I really really appreciate you spending the time and sharing everything today yeah thanks so much for having me Corey this was a blast Thanks again to Paige for coming on the show. Make sure to check out Seed to Harvest and pick up a copy for yourself. And if you can spare a moment, click on the link in the show notes and pop out on Twitter to thank her for sharing everything today. She's really active there, so I'm sure she'd love to hear from you. And to wrap up, here are a few of my takeaways. I love the mantra to get on the bus, be customer-centric, and democratize customer insights. The more you can put yourself in your customer's shoes, the better. It also occurred to me during our conversation that the shift from sales-led to product-led is the same shift from synchronous to asynchronous, which is the same shift from local to global and in-office to remote. This is a mega trend in the world right now that will just continue to get larger and larger. And finally, I can't say enough, but Twitter is such a powerful validation tool. Because of the real-time feedback and ability to really quantify people's reactions, you can easily see if an idea has legs, if it has traction. Just like how Seed to Harvest started out as a tweet and sprouted into a full-on illustrated book. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swipefiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.